note before jumping into today's podcast, the Flip Learning Network is a non-profit and we are always looking for support from our community. There are many options to support us. Please ask us on social media or check out our page at fliplearning.org slash support FLN. We have a Patreon set up. We can accept donations via PayPal. We have an Amazon affiliate link and some other options through sponsorship links on the website. Uh, a new recording of Ask the Flip Learning Network. I have Alex Moore here with me today, dialing in from the UK. And uh, we just like to chat a little bit about his work. I'll see, I'll, I'll read Alex's bio that we have on the Flip Learning Network, and, and maybe he'll uh, correct me if it's wrong. So Alex Moore teaches secondary, which uh, we call high school on this side of the pond, physical education, sport, and music in the UK. Currently head of PE at Shaftesbury School in Dorset. That's right, yeah. says here, the past three years, you were working on uh, teaching and learning masters through Bath University, and I believe yeah, you finished cool. that, right? That finished last summer. I'll start my PhD in January next year, so. Oh, wonderful. A little Good. bit of a break in between, just to kind of uh, reset. <laughs> Take a rest. And, and is this going to be in the same research area? Are you extending what you worked on already? Maybe, maybe. So basically, um, I've got a few ideas in the pipeline. Some of them have kind of come off the back of some of the work I've done on flip learning. Quite interested in that 27-minute idea, mm-hmm. uh, academic learning time. Also pretty fascinated by um, like agile learning spaces, creating like a future classroom that's a little bit taken away from the teacher sat at the front of the classroom. Um, we've got an exciting project. We've been selected as one of the 10 schools in the UK to install this amazing future classroom that will have VR it will have a 360 projector. So that sounds pretty exciting. Oh, awesome. Yeah. yeah I look cool forward to following it. We got a bunch of stuff going on in that area in our university system here in the Tec de Monterey. So um, when you get a chance, I might be able to show you with what they're doing here. I'm not directly involved in that, but I can show you what we're doing on our side on that That's and uh, cool. see if that helps you out at all. Yeah. So why don't you tell us, we just published, this is the second post that we had for you on the Flip Learning network uh website yeah. this was just last week and i'll just read out the title since someone's looking for it all this will be in the show notes so the title was students the main actors in the learning process flip learning research findings yeah so for those that haven't dug into it why don't you give us even the summary of the summary because this is actually a summary of the research findings obviously yeah, so it was Let's a big project jump in yeah it was a big project it took me um kind of a year and it was, it was a big journey. So I wanted to really look at flip learning from a, maybe a different standpoint and look at it from the student's point of view. Because obviously, as you're aware, there's a lot of research, quantitative and qualitative, from, stu- uh, from teachers' perspectives and educators and higher mm-hmm. education. Um, but what kind of there seems to be a bit of a, a lack of at the time of writing was, you know, what do the students think of flip learning? And what do they mm-hmm. feel about the process? How much ownership do they feel over it? So I wanted to illuminate and shed a little bit of light in that area. That was my real motivator for doing the research. Um, so I started off with a group that I'd worked with for a while. And um, yeah, we interviewed them. We interviewed a lot of them. It took a long time because obviously you've got to transcribe all the interviews. And then I, I used a process called thematic analysis, um, which I use quite um, frequently. Um, if I spin the camera around, you'll see... Um, all my research on the wall, we're currently yep. doing something on challenge in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So that took the best part of probably three months worth of work to code it, come up with like latent and somatic themes. And then it boiled down to kind of the three main themes that are in the blog post, which was um, kind of different to my hypothesis, I guess, to a certain extent. So yeah, it's an interesting, quite heavily invested time-wise, but it was quite a worthwhile um, process. I enjoyed it. 
Oh, definitely. I mean, I think going into this type of research and I actually did, I didn't do my research on my PhD work in flipped learning. What I was doing was, um, basically best practices of software engineers working together in teams in collaboration and even over a distance. And I did a lot of uh, qualitative analysis and digging into the detail. I did a lot of analysis of their messages over, you know, ancient platforms like IRC, but the communications to me was the most important part between the teams. And I think some of that's visible in your analysis where you're looking at what they're saying to you and, and, and how they're reacting to what's important. Um, I know you talked about the, the send sample, not making progress at all when using flip learning. And so that was a bit of a surprise to you. It's something we want to, we'd probably expect that those are the ones that gain the most because we tend to think like that the people that are really good at playing school don't want us to change anything. No, no. And the ones that are suffering, should get the best benefit. So why don't you, why don't you dig a little bit into that about the, the term and, and how it happened? It's an interesting story. Um, um, forgive me, there's some knocking in the background. They're doing don't some worry. building work outside and it <laughs> radiates for a bit. Um, so, with the, so SEN in the UK stands for Special Educational Needs. So that's normally um, a, a label that is assigned to children that may have learning difficulties in, in a range of different capacities. Um, so... At the start of the project, I didn't really think that group would underperform in flip learning. I thought that they'd enjoy it and they'd, they'd really benefit from it. But actually what I found as I unpicked the research is that they found it difficult. They found the freedom that flip learning kind of affords um, a little bit too much and they wanted that assurance from the teacher. Now there's definitely a deeper story there. What my research did is it, it didn't unpick that story necessarily. So I think that could be a further angle for a future research project. But it kind of noted that one, they didn't make as much progress as other students um, that didn't have SEM. Um, but also in the UK, we have disadvantaged groups. Um, we have EAL, which is English as an additional language. So you may have that in Mexico, where English yeah. is a second or third language. Yeah. And yeah. traditionally, those students can struggle to make progress because it's not their first language. Right. Um, we have a group called Gifted and Talented, who are the higher end academic. And they were, the Gifted and Talented and the um, EAL students made the progress I was expecting and more. But it was just this one group that seemed to almost go backwards or go nowhere with being exposed to flip learning. Right. And I think if I was to revisit that, I'd like to unpick the why. Um, I think I've got a theory as to why. Okay. I think if we use kind of Vygotsky's own approximate development as a platform for explaining how teachers work with students, uh, like the overlapping Venn diagram, mm-hmm. I think what we're doing with flip learning is we're almost breaking up that Venn diagram and we're sending them off with some inquiry-based stuff. And yep. maybe they don't have the confidence to go and do that without having a teacher show them exactly how to do it or talk them through the process. Right. So I think that might be what kind of the research was telling me through the narrative, but I can't be absolutely sure. It was a bit of an unexpected finding that one. Right. Definitely. And I, and I think that does match Alex a lot with my experience over the years of flip learning of anecdotally seeing that some students got it. Some people didn't get it. Some of my students graduated and then three years later, they came back to me and said, yeah, this, you're trying to push me to learn more by myself and be more self-regulated and I resisted and I resisted. And now that I'm working, I realize, yeah, there's a lot of value in that. So thanks. Yeah, um, it killed me on my teaching evaluation, but they were happy later. So it's all good. But um, I, I've seen that and I think I get it. I actually talked a little bit about that with uh, Sean Michael Moore uh, two episodes back about, 
my struggle of finding the right amount of scaffolding for the students in my classrooms and that different students need different levels of scaffolding. Definitely. And I think that's where you're driving at. And, and I'd love to see the research and I should do some research that on myself. Um, but again, time, I know how much is involved in doing this analysis. So I really love that. Um, the other thing that I dug into, so there's the 26 minutes that comes out yeah. and, and I got some thoughts on that and the, and the learning time of 6 PM to 9 PM. I, I, I was curious about that. Yeah, isn't that strange? So that again, I wasn't expecting to find that. I kind of assumed that students might plug in in the evenings because um, I normally set anything between five and seven days between my tasks. So I'd set one task a week predominantly. Sometimes I doubled it, but most of the time it would be one task a week. And I'd have the whole week to do it. Mm -hmm. Most it's just, it's just strange that the entire sample um, plugged in between six and nine o'clock. That was when, yeah. you know, those three hours was their optimum learning time. So it got me thinking about like a normal school day. A kid comes to school, they do their school day, they go home, they probably do a club, sport, maybe eat some food. And then, right, I need to do some flip learning. And they log in and they access. And maybe that in a teenager's brain with like circadian sleep rhythms, maybe that's a good time. Maybe their brains are quite alive then. And maybe we should be maybe targeting that time as a productive time for them, perhaps mm -hmm. to learn. Or maybe, maybe it's outside of their scheduled stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about that. Uh, Robert Talbert, I'm sure you've, you've seen his work, um, put out the question yesterday. How do you start talking to a first year undergraduate students about organizing their time? Yeah. And, and it came out, let's make a list of the things that are scheduled that in our lives and what is the unscheduled stuff. And maybe that 6 to 9 p.m. is when dinner's done. Um, they don't have, you know, soccer practice or footy practice or whatever's going on. And there's that time where they can go, this is when I can dig in. I'm, 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 in, I'm encouraged because I put my deadlines all at 9 p.m. for okay. my classes this semester because I don't like making it midnight. I don't like making it too early. I want to give them enough time so that they can do it, but not kind of encourage, and here's the air quotes, to do things at midnight. So I like that. Something like 92% of the data sample fell within that, that time period. Throughout and the so was this collected through your LMS, whether it's Canvas or, or Blackboard or whichever you're using? Yeah, so we, we used an exam platform called MyPE exam, which does okay. all this for you. So it tells you what time the kids logged in, how many times they watched the video, when they paused it, when they rewound it. It's really quite mm -hmm. a cool bit of technology, a bit like Big Brother style. You can really yeah. delve into what they're doing. And yeah, it was around 92.5% of the kids throughout the entire eight week testing window were in that time frame. Um, there was a few that went above that. And I kind of thought kids, teenagers in particular, because I was teaching 14 to 16 years, up, years old, would go later than that. I thought that they would be maybe 10, 11 o'clock at night. So I was a bit surprised by that. Yeah. Interesting. What, what do they do after, right? Because yeah, the homework done and then they're yeah. playing video games, they're watching Netflix or whatever they're, do, they're doing exactly. in the evening. Exactly. Yeah. Wonderful. And what about that 26 minute? Yeah, again, so um, I've been thinking for a long time, I've been wondering why do we educate kids in one hour learning episodes? Sometimes it's two, sometimes it's three. What, what's this thing about this hour? And um, that came, are you familiar with, you're probably familiar with John Hattie. Right. He, did, he, he dropped a reference in Invisible Thinking about 27 minutes being the optimum learning time. And that kind of went, was in my head. And then I, I, the research came out at 26 minutes. And so a light bulb went off thinking, well, that's strange. The kids are spending 26 minutes on that. Maybe that's all that they've got. And um, when Hattie did his research, the least able kids in his, in his sample were able to concentrate for nine minutes and the most able 
45. So he averaged it at 27. That was his kind of reasoning. Mm-hmm. So since that research paper, we're a year on, aren't we? Uh, pretty much to the day. I, um, I've been playing around with a new way to do my lessons. And it's, it's kind of a variation on the flip 101 model. Um, and I call it the flip 27 minute. And I do 27 minutes of new content. And mm-hmm. I spend 27 minutes to the second with a stopwatch and the kids hold the stopwatch where we do new content. And the first sort of 10, 12 minutes is all about the video they've watched and we interact with that. So that's the traditional flip model. Right. Sometimes that goes beyond. If the discussion's healthy, yeah. it, it goes beyond. But that's all new content. We're making notes, we're learning new stuff. And then I give them a conscious break in between. It's, it's not necessarily exactly the, you know, six minutes, five minutes. It's more like four or three. Um, and then the second 27 minutes of the lesson, we test the content in some capacity that we learned in the first half. What I found, and I've got no research to back this up other than my own classroom experience at the moment, is that kids are way more focused, they're way more mm-hmm. engaged, they buy into the model, they say they enjoy it more, they're more refreshed in the second part of the lesson. And that's the way I teach, that's what I do now. And I really feel strongly that it's quite a nice model for all teachers to take on board. It might be impossible in a practical lesson like cooking, where potentially they need to get all the ingredients out. You gotta um, get it out of the oven. You can't, you gotta come up. But a, a traditional classroom lesson where we get them to sit there for an hour, it's different it, and, and it works. And the kids really understand what I was trying to do with it. I explained it to them where the idea came from and they love it. You know, they're there with a the stopwatch and they give me like a two minute countdown. And sometimes it's quite challenging as a teacher to keep in that time. And it can be right. quite a loose thing, but as long as you give them a break, Hmm. Interesting. Cause I'm seeing the analogy. I don't know if you've heard of the Pomodoro technique. No, I've not. No. So there's a time management technique. Uh, Robert Talbert writes about these a lot. And actually Bonnie Stokowiak, who does the teaching in higher ed podcast talks a lot about this time management as, as educators and, and helping our students. That was the, the tweet from Robert yesterday. And um, so there's this technique called Pomodoro. And uh, the idea is that just that we can only focus on things for about 25 minutes and that's their numbers, 25. And and it's also, you should hyper-focus on one thing for 25 minutes, uh, whether you're working at your desk, doing research and then take a five minute break and then do another 25 minutes and then a five minute break. And every hour and a half or so you give yourself a a longer break. Um, And the theory behind it being that we can only, focus so long on a given task for a certain amount of time. So it totally matches up to that. Um, I applied it for like six months religiously to try to be better at focusing, especially when I was doing writing on my research. Um, So I love that it matches up to that Pomodoro 25-5 matchup. And I think it does match to our classroom. We can't, we we need shifts in focus inside the classroom. I'm trying to do that more. So I like that that came out in your research. That that makes me... It's cool. And that Pomodoro, how do you spell that? I'm going to check that out. P-O-M-O-D-O-R-O. It's, it's Italian for tomato or tomato. Let's, let's not argue about how to pronounce. Uh, I'll yeah, see yeah. if my Canadian gets closer to you, UK. But yeah, it's, uh, the idea is you set a kitchen timer. And okay. the person who invented this, his kitchen timer was a, a tomato. And so right. it, that's how it came out as the Pomodoro technique. Um, there's apps for it, but really it's the concept of uh, planning and hyper focusing and not having your cell phone go off while you're trying to do things and oh let's go check out this and this hyper focusing on one thing for time management outside so yeah. 
it's interesting that it matches that their their theory of 25 matches what you came out and what john hattie came out as there's something there isn't there that like again i was alluding to earlier potential phd research project into looking at optimal learning time you know and the focus definitely and if you haven't checked out what robert talbert's written about that you should definitely check that out as well cool what i liked as well so for me reflecting on flip learning and why i love the way I've transformed my classroom over the last five, six years is I spend so much more time listening to my students, getting to know my students inside and outside the classroom. Um, and I like how you talked about getting into the analysis of those interviews when you're transcribing them and how you probably really got to know your students a lot better from doing that. It was fascinating. And some of the students that, because I picked a real, as the research probably mentions, I picked a real mixed bag of students. Mm-hmm. Just to make sure I didn't bias the sample. And um, yeah, some of the things that I thought they would say, they didn't. I mean, the cool thing about kids is they're brutally honest, right? They tell, <laughs> they tell you exactly as it is. There's no, exactly. you know, and that could have gone really badly wrong because they could have turned out, <laughs> we hate it, learning, it's rubbish, we need to stop doing it. They didn't, they, you know, they didn't say that at all. And some of the, Comments they came out with were just superb. Um, I have a teacher in my pocket. I love that one so much. That's so mm-hmm. I saw that and I love that. I've got a 24-7 teacher. They're always on. They're always there. Um, um, yeah, I've got a teacher that only talks back to me when I want them to. Do <laughs> 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 all these great things that kids come out with. And they were really honest about it. And they didn't think they were funny comments. They, were, you know, they genuinely meant them as, this is what I like about flip learning. But just the autonomy that flip learning gives kids came out time and time again. They love the fact that they could put it on when it suited them. Ironically, that was between six and nine o'clock in the evenings. Um, and they, they really love that aspect. And just talking to them and kind of um, delving through those interview questions, I found myself saying quite often, oh, it's really interesting. Like, tell me more about that. And then they'd elaborate and go into details. But yeah, it was fascinating. Really interesting. It'd be really cool to see a follow up with those students a few years down the line as well and and see that because anecdotally i've got that experience because i've been teaching in this location for 24 years now so i know students that are well graduated and actually their their children have come through and studied with me so i've been able to go back and reflect on their experiences with my differences in the classroom later on down the line i haven't done this as a research study but it'd be interesting to see that those effects on those students farther down the line because my one thing i'd like to research is if these students are exposed to flip learning and more um, self-paced learning at the beginning of say their degree programs does that not only impact the class they're in but impact them in their whole university degree program does it make them a better student compared to the the other students in the end, I'd love to see something done like that. And I, that that's my bet. Yeah. So it'd be I cool. guess like it, that would be quite a hard one to get some <laughs> evidence on. It'd be probably relying on interviews again. Like, yeah. no, um, yeah. And it's just such an exciting field. I love, I love the autonomy it gives kids. And I just, I think the thing I didn't mention in my research, I've been doing flip learning for a long time now. And I love the fact that kids ask you questions as a teacher. Mm-hmm. About it. And that's really cool, isn't it? So, mm-hmm. and what, you know, Quite often they'll over-research a topic that's beyond the spec yeah. and they'll bring it to you. And you, you might sometimes be like, I don't know about that random strain of whatever that is, but I'll go research it. That's and that's wonderful. Thing. And it's wonderful that it does that. I think um, I do a lot of work on how to uh, remove grading from the classroom. And I've found that when I do that, 
it removes that, that bar that they're reaching for. And I have a lot of students go well past what I expect them to do because I haven't put an artificial bar saying, if you get this level, you've got your hundred percent. And, and some students just go crazy level of, of diving into a topic that I had no time to cover myself. So I, I love that part of it. What else? What else excites you about your classroom? Yeah, I mean, we just said before coming on, this is your first beta act of work. Kids yeah. aren't back yet, but what, what's, what's your passion? Um, just thinking outside the box and looking at learning from kids' point of view rather than the point of view that we want to enforce on them. Um, that really, yeah, gets me excited about learning. So um, are you familiar with a famous journal uh, from Sage on the Side? Uh, side from, guide, from Guide on the Side to Sage on the Stage. Or the other mm -hmm. Right. Uh, King. Um, that I read years ago and it resonated at the time in like 1993 and it resonates to this day and I think one of the biggest challenges we've got as educators is getting away from this model of teaching where we're stood at the front of the class disseminating information and the kids are mm -hmm. writing I feel with flipped learning it's a fantastic platform to change that dialect and that conversation mm -hmm. and put more emphasis on the students but I feel the next chapter and certainly my academic work is going to be to totally change up the classroom like change yeah. it 100% like, I mean, I'm even thinking with this new project of doing away with all the desks, having no desks, um, yep. having mobile seating, having writable surfaces all the way around the room, having mm -hmm. VR, and just having a look at like what skills kids need in industry um, mm -hmm. and kind of taking inspiration from that. So my wife, wife works for a company called Lush Cosmetics. You may have heard of those guys. Mm -hmm. Lush. If you go and look in their buildings, uh, and their creative working space. It's quite similar to Google. They're, they're light years away from like a traditional classroom. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to rethink the way that we're teaching kids. And there is definitely a time and place for the teacher stood at the front of the class, but maybe for 10 yeah. or 15 minutes rather than 60. Yeah. And I think that what excites me going forward is flip learning is great for that because I could quite easily stand back for 10 minutes and ask a simple question, like, tell me more about that. Interesting, mm -hmm. what do you think about that? The kids self-regulate their learning, they question each other, and that is where I think we need to be going rather than this model where we just kind of dictate from the front, which I believe the authorities have kind of put on us with pressures, external pressures of results mm -hmm. and outcomes. That's kind of what we're, we're, we're measured by, but I think like what excites me going forward is the technology's evolving, let's tap into it, and let's have classrooms that are just, they are future classrooms, not, you know, how much has our classroom changed from a kid that was existing 200 years ago? Yeah. Yeah. They, wouldn't, they wouldn't recognize our language, our cell phones, our transport, our fashion, but they would recognize one thing and that's the classroom. It's yeah. pretty much the same. Definitely. So, yeah. And I like how you mentioned there in when you talked about the special educational needs students, um, there's still, despite changing our role, there's still this great respect for our role as the teacher. And a lot of students, even though they can watch a video on YouTube or Twitch or wherever they're watching it, um, they still want to hear what's, what's your opinion, yeah. Mr. Moore? What, what, what are you going to tell me about this? Is this true? Is this false? And, and, and I think that's really key. And a lot of students kind of need that more than others. And maybe there's the key behind that as well. Yeah, that human connection, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Just to sound ideas off. And it yeah. got me thinking that there is potential to set up like a buddy system where some older students who maybe have more grasp of the concept love it. Could, be that, could be that connection. I so love it. Again, you're just kind of passing the learning back to the students and seeing where well, they go. It's connective learning, which is another a big, big belief of mine that I, I love that. 
Wonderful. Um, let me pop the questions on you because I have these classic questions. I think I forgot to ask them to both Sean and, and Jesse. So uh, this came up in an interview of Bonnie Stokowiak on a friend's podcast recommended by Christian Friedrich. So his question was, name like uh, the first album you bought way back in the years and, and, and you're, you're closer to my age. So we remember going out and buying albums. Yeah. If you can remember maybe what the first album you bought and is that any way related the title, the, the thoughts behind it with your work as an educator? That's a really cool question. I think that might be my favorite. So my first ever album was Bleach by Nirvana. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I, was, uh, I was a massive grunge. The hair, you wouldn't tell now, but I had like Kurt Cobain hair. And, uh -huh. um, yeah, I actually, I had tickets to go and see him at Reading, but I was a naughty boy and my mum made me sell them. And then like, <laughs> Kurt, Cobain, Kurt Cobain was no longer. But um, yeah, yeah. So that was the first album I actually parted with money and bought. Um, it was okay. way before the days of being able to Spotify and stuff. So. Cool. Yeah, and that, I guess, um, it's quite an archaic, chaotic album, which is mm -hmm. kind of, I think that is a metaphor for the way that I teach. I'm not a conformer, I like quite a radical, outspoken person, so, and do things slightly differently, which Nirvana totally did at the time. Um, mm -hmm. I'm gonna be really I love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And I like, I, I see kids with Nirvana t-shirts in my, in my classrooms, and I go, yeah, I was, I lived in Seattle in the mid, early 90s. Oh, wow. I was there when all that happened. And, did you ever go and see? Did you ever go and see Nirvana? No, I, ne I never did. I was there in grad school at the University of Washington in Seattle at that time, so I was surrounded by that that grunge culture while I was trying to get my master's degree done. So uh, I was a little bit older, so I think I was more uh, going to gray hairs already. But yeah, I love that. I love that response because I think a lot of us that are active, sharing what we're doing. Um, doing things outside of the box we're sharing on our blogs and our videos and, and and other methods we are being radical oftentimes and not following what's the um status quo and and the accepted and sometimes we're uh pushing the line a little bit as well so i, I that's an awesome answer i love this question i thank you christian for asking that to yeah, terry right. to ask to bonnie so i'm stealing things but it's good yeah. and then the other question alex is Give me the name of a couple of teachers that just had massive impact on you and, and influenced your education. Yeah, okay. So talking about my own, when I was a kid at school, there was a history teacher, and I hated history, I find it really boring. His name was Mr. Dickin Fuller. And um, he, he was unbelievable. Like, I think actually, like digging back, I think that might be the reason I became a teacher. I mean, I was mm -hmm. only sort of nine, 10 years old. And it, it was Hannibal in the Alps, and he used to just have this way of encapsulating you like you felt like you were there in just a basic classroom setting. So he was pretty magical. I remember one time he just brought a stuffed bird. I don't know if it was a hawk or an eagle, this massive stuffed bird into the classroom. And he just walked in with it, and we were all encapsulated like, what is this? <laughs> He didn't mention anything for the whole hour about the bird. Then at the end of the lesson, he just picked it up, put it under his arm, and walked out the classroom. But he had us for that whole hour. And he was that type of guy. And that was quite early in my experience. And then I had a really inspirational lecturer at um, university called Ian Coleman, who really thought differently about learning and had this cool, cool kind of vision about, yeah, you're going to be a teacher and you're going to impact, you know, 100 kids maybe or 200 kids in your school. But if you train teachers and start, you know, investing your time in training teachers, there'll be tens of thousands of influences. Mm -hmm. So it's, he had a really cool kind of, and he was a bit kind of maverick as well. He had a different attitude. So I kind of picked that up from him. And then more recently, I've got some incredible, I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by some incredible teachers that I work with here. There's a teacher called Hattie Lacey here who teaches drama. 
And I have never seen a lesson as good as what I saw when I walked. I was only supposed to be in there for 20 minutes. I stayed the whole hour. <laughs> they were doing something to do with World War One, and they're in the trenches. And she had like all this lighting and smoke machines and like visuals going on. And I lost my clipboard because it was so dark in there. I was supposed to be doing a lesson observation. And I was just immersed in this, this, um, this learning. And when you see the kids around the school, they are running to get to this teacher's lesson. And that's mm-hmm. just me like really inspirational i came out thinking i needed to up my game after yeah. that experience and there's there's some other great teachers at this school a girl called rachel Sanders doing some stuff on feedback that's really fascinating um, a guy called chris humphreys who is the engagement king the kids are just like sat on the edge of their seats in this lesson and yeah there's there's some there's some there's some cool stuff going on locally um a guy called joe burtmar just down the road does lots of stuff on solo taxonomy Yep. I mentioned, I saw you mention the post Joe B somewhere. So I was wondering who that was. So that came out yeah. good. Joe Burtmar, well worth checking out his kind of um, what he's up to. He's a really cool guy and he does a lot of solos. So he gets the kids out of their chairs. How much do you know about this? Which is nice for flipped as well. Nothing, one thing, three things, pre-structural. So that's really cool. That inspires me a lot. And then Sukhata Mitra, hole in the wall experiment and school in the cloud. I love that guy's whole take on education. Like, mm-hmm you know, kind of resonating with what you were saying about if we just kind of left the kids to their own devices, self-regulated, what would they come up with? Right. And he's got quite an interesting take on education, I think. So yeah, that's kind of my top five, six, I would say. Wonderful. Yeah. Awesome answers. I love that, Alex. If people want to find what you're doing and uh, or get in touch with you, where should they look? Okay, so I host a blog with a uh, colleague of mine called Nigel Armistead, who I should definitely mention as well. I can't believe I missed him out. Um, it's collectively, we, we call ourselves the Educational Hipsters. Just a joke. We don't really nice. hipsters. So you can find us on www.educationalhipsters.com. And there's a plethora of ideas, blogs, research, uh, experiments. Some of the stuff we've talked about today is in a lot more depth on that website. So I'd recommend that as a starting point. And um, yeah, you can go from there. Awesome. Well, I'll put all of this into the show notes. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm so glad. Thank you, Kelly Walsh, for connecting us uh, and recommending that we did this. So uh, cheers out to Kelly on that and have an awesome weekend there, Alex. Yeah. Cheers. Take care. Good to talk. Excellent. We'll be in touch. The Flip Learning Network is the original online hub of the Flip Learning community. We are a not-for-profit organization whose mission includes providing access to a wealth of tools, resources, and professional development opportunities. We hope to help educators build on the possibilities inherent in flip learning and to explore evolving student-centered instructional practices. We invite educators everywhere to explore the resources available at fliplearning.org and to contribute to the discussion through comments, questions, and by submitting your own posts. Indeed, the site is built on the contributions from flipped educators like yourself who write blog posts. We also encourage you to join us on Slack where we have an ongoing dialogue. More information on the site about that. You can help support the FLN by making your purchases through our Amazon.com affiliate link at fliplearning.org Amazon, or you can support us directly on a monthly basis as a patron at Patreon. The short link for that is fliplearning.org slash Patreon. Thank you.